I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you are listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 22. As usual, we have two amazing stories for you today, so let's stop gabbing and get right to it, shall we? Our first story today is Chasing the Wind by Elizabeth E. Wine. Elizabeth is the holder of a private pilot's license and an increasing collection of random World War II ephemera. Her story of the friendship between a female spy and pilot codename Verity, won the Edgar Award for Young Adult Fiction in 2013. Her most recent novel is Rose Under Fire, another World War II thriller for teens. Elizabeth lives in Scotland with her husband and two children. Her website is elizabethwine.com and she tweets as well, so find that on Triple F. It's read for us today by Rachel D. Rachel is new to the audio world and excited to step in. She's always enjoyed reading and was the child who read out loud to her mother, not the other way round. Taking away books was also how she was grounded when she was younger. Currently, she lives in the DFW area with her husband, cat and dog, and is pursuing film and television acting. So, let's listen to Chasing the Wind by Elizabeth E. Wine. Martha Bennett sat on her trunk in the middle of Nairobi Airport watching the other passengers disperse. She'd been sitting there for two hours, waiting for her father and reading over and over again the terse telegram she had received the day before she left Philadelphia. May not meet. Taxi Wilson Airport. Hart Alden Flying Quail. She was not good at waiting. It made her nervous and irritable, but Martha could not quite believe her urbane Philadelphian parents would absolutely abandon her to her own devices in the middle of Africa, and she thought there must be a chance that her father would turn up at the last minute. Although it was not really so different to being abandoned in the middle of Philadelphia, which is what they had done at the beginning of the year, 
when her father had started his sabbatical. He and his wife had left their city church and gone to live on a pineapple plantation and teach English at the local school, in a place where you had to lock in your dogs at night because there might be lions around. In 1950, it was also a place where the native dispossessed were sharpening knives and spears as they grew determined to throw off the rule of the colonists who had built such plantations in the first place. Martha, who was in the middle of her junior year at Girls High, had stayed with her best friend's family so she could finish the school year in Philadelphia. Now it was summer, and she was joining her parents on the pineapple farm. May not meet. What did that mean? Might not be able to, or can't? What would stop her father from leaving his voluntary job for a day? But as the terminal traffic slowed to a trickle between flight arrivals, leaving Martha, a conspicuously foreign teenaged girl, alone in the middle of Nairobi, it became clear that no one was going to meet her, and that Martha would have to taxi Wilson Airport. She had left her hat in Cairo when she had last changed planes. The palms of her cotton gloves were damp and gray with travel, and the foreign coins slipped from her fingers when she tried to count them out. She was hot and tired and hungry. And what about the trouble everyone had warned her about before she left home? What about the native uprisings, the street fights, the unrest? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Those were the words her minister father always scolded her with. Jesus' words to Martha. She muttered them over to herself. One thing is needful. She only had to worry about one thing right now, and she would rather do anything than sit and wait one moment longer. Martha stood up and steeled herself to go find out how to hire a taxi. Everyone she spoke to treated her as politely as if she were a grown woman. A small boy helped her pick up her dropped coins, and she paid him to watch her trunk while she found a porter. The porter helped her find a taxi and shook hands with her before she got in. She felt better now that she had taken action and stared out the window with interest and apprehension at the unfamiliar streets. She was sure she had never seen a city with so little automobile traffic. Horses, wagons, donkeys, goats, bicycles, yes, but only a handful of cars other than the one she rode in. But she had been warned not to ride the buses. Martha watched it suspiciously as it trundled around a corner and disappeared down a cross street. Nairobi's wide avenues were bright with the red-orange flames of African tulip trees, dark with their thick green foliage. Wilson, said the taxi driver. The domestic airport was a sprawl of hangars and sheds, some of them newly built of concrete blocks, some little more than shelters of thatched palm. I'm looking for Hart Alden, Martha asked. A regional airline, maybe? Take you to the Aero Club? The driver answered kindly, and they bumped to the end of the service road down a long driveway edged with hibiscus. The driver stopped the car and unloaded Martha's trunk beneath a stand of fig trees. Keyed up with all the warnings she'd been given, Martha had been prepared to find Kenya frightening, but she had not expected its beauty. It mixed her up. Please wait till I know I'm in the right place, she begged as she paid the driver, as though the taxi were a lifeboat. Then she dragged on her limp gloves, swatted at her limp hair, and once again reluctantly steeled herself for battle. It was late morning. The lounge of the Aero Club of East Africa was nearly empty, but not very quiet, because there was an ancient grim from tinnily cranking out Handel's royal fireworks music. In the dimmest, most shadowy corner of the room, sunk in a wicker sofa behind an electric fan and three-day-old newspaper, languished what appeared to be the Aero Club's only member— I'm looking for Hart Alden, Martha said to the newspaper. 
The pages rustled aside like a curtain lifting to reveal a glamorous golden-banged head swaddled in a green silk scarf and hidden by big dark sunglasses. How can she see a thing, thought Martha. Are you by any chance Martha Bennett? the starlet asked, smacking her newspaper into submission. Yes, ma'am, Martha answered with automatic politeness. Thank Christ Almighty, does Harry know you're here? No, I don't know. Who? I'm looking for a flight transfer, I think. Oh, you doll, the starlet exclaimed, as suddenly happy and excited as a girl at her first homecoming. You're American. Uh-huh, last time I checked, said Martha, smiling. I thought you'd be English. Everyone's English here. They're all very sweet, but... She let the sentence hang. Martha looked around the lounge and knew that this woman meant without her having to explain. There was an enormous wooden propeller mounted on one wall, gleaming sad and proud above a too long roll of honor to all the club's young pilots killed for king and country when Martha was a little girl. Everything about the place, from the grass-thatched ceiling to the starched white shirt of the silent butler, whispered insistently, British Empire. My husband owns the quail plantation. You and me, were going to fly there together, the starlet said. Hart Alden, Harry, is our pilot. I'm Mrs. Copley, Mary Copley. Mary and Martha, Martha said. Isn't that funny? Like, in the Bible. I hope that doesn't mean you get to sit listening to stories while I rush around cooking supper for everybody. Mrs. Copley's dark sunglasses stared toward her blankly. I'm a PK, Martha said, laughing. She had meant it as a joke. I always talk like this. Mrs. Copley took the glasses off as though it would help her to make more sense of what Martha, if she could see her more clearly. PK, preacher's kid, Martha added, then to herself, oh, shut up, Martha. Martha had always vaguely resented being named Martha. She felt deeply dissatisfied at being automatically cast in the role of attendant. Once, right after the war ended, her father's church had hosted a visiting minister from Harlem who had come to dinner at the Bennetts on the first night in Philadelphia. He had been a fascinating, opinionated, hugely intelligent man, and Martha had sat over dinner riveted by his stories. When her mother had asked her to help clear the table, Martha had made them all burst out laughing by complaining, Oh, why did you have to name me Martha when I wanted to be a Mary? Do you usually rush around cooking for people? Mrs. Copley asked, smiling at last. I like to have something to do, Martha said. I like to help, you know, but I'm not good at listening. My mother says I'm always so busy finding something for me to do that I don't pay attention to what anyone else wants. We'll get along just fine then, Mrs. Copley said. I like to be pampered. She put her glasses back on and sipped at her drink. Do you know why no one's here to meet us? Martha asked. The plane's not big enough to carry a welcoming committee, and it's not safe to go by roads these days. Or trains. Really? If you're white. Is it really that bad? I don't know. The British papers say it's getting worse. Mary Copey slammed down the one she had been reading. My husband's such a goddamn entrepreneur— Bought this farm cheap from a Dutch couple who decided to go home. Like a good old Yankee carpetbagger. I can't believe I agreed to come live here. Martha thought resignedly. At least my family's all going home in September. Is the pilot here? She asked. Hart Alden? Harry. He's American, too. He picks up customers here. He runs a kind of flying taxi service. You and me and my kitties today. We've been waiting for you. Go and let Harry know you're here and we can get going. 
He's in the bar. I can't go into the bar. It's mid-morning. Who cares what the rules are? Mrs. Copley picked up her paper again. So Martha went to meet her pilot. He was sitting at the bar, but drinking coffee. He was pouring the awful remains of a battered aluminum pot into one of the flying club's china teacups, and the barman was already filtering fresh coffee into another, more genteel pot which sat on a flaring gas ring. Martha's father also drank coffee in this irreverent way, often reheating last night's leftovers in a pan and letting it bubble away into sludge, then drinking it anyway. This kinship made Martha like the pilot without knowing anything else about him. She imagined him and her father making the arrangements for her trip on a palm-thatched veranda somewhere over cups of black coffee as unpalatable as engine oil. Captain Alden, Martha said, holding out her hand. I'm Martha Bennett. Your passenger? Hart Alden stood up carefully, watching his feet, and Martha saw that he was lame. There was a walking stick hanging over the bar between his coffee cup and an ashtray, but he did not touch it. He held onto the counter with his left hand, and with his right he took Martha's in a firm handshake. He said warmly, Welcome, Martha. We're fellow Philadelphians. Really? You're at the Wissahickens Farm School? No, my best friend is. Sally Atkins? Her mother's a secretary. I lived with the Atkins family most of this year, but I'm at Girls High. My sister Lucy teaches horticulture at the farm school. Actually, she is horticulture. She bullied them into hiring her, and now they've let in a class of 20 girls. Martha laughed, delighted. She's Dr. Alden? The terror of the flower show? Sally talks about her all the time. So does Mrs. Atkins. Talk about a small world. You're Dr. Alden's brother? That's me. Unaccountably, Hart Alden did not match her amazed delight as he answered, and his gaze wandered toward his coffee. If anything, he seemed disappointed, which made no sense at all. I've guessed you've never met her then, he added, almost casually, and stepped out the cigarette that was burning itself down in the ashtray. He looked up again, more brightly. We'd better get going or we'll end up postponing this trip till tomorrow. I want to do it in daylight. I should have met your flight from Cairo, but... He stopped and gave a wry smile. He was almost naturally apologetic. He was tall and angular, but he stooped. His light brown hair, almost the same color as his face, was graying faintly. His gray eyes were mild. I don't know if you want to hear my excuse or not. It'll make you think twice about letting me fly you across East Africa. I managed to get a pen to leap out of my shirt pocket into the fuel tank of my plane while I was checking the fuel level this morning, and we had to drain the tank. It took an hour to fish the dang pen out, too. You try hooking a pen out of the wing of a small plane with a safety pin and a coat hanger. Then we were all worried there'd be ink in the fuel, so we had to flush the tank. Oh. Martha said. Oh, the fuel goes in the wing? I didn't know that. That's neat. The barman chuckled. Hart Alden gazed at Martha with a mild grin. That's not what Mary Copley said when I told her, the pilot commented. You're supposed to give me a lecture about responsibility, not admire aircraft design. But you got the pen out, didn't you? What's the problem? There isn't one, but it could kill you if there was. That, Martha thought, exactly summed up her first impressions of Africa. It still took another age to get going. Mrs. Copley's cats had to be fed and watered, and Martha had to arrange to have her trunk set on the train after her. It was too heavy, not to mention about three times too big, to take in the tiny luggage well of Hart Alden's little four-seated Cessna 170. Martha abandoned her gloves without regret and hastily packed one blouse and a sweater and some underwear in a burlap coffee sack, 
so that for three days all her clothes and her hairbrush and her paper back smelled of coffee, and her toothbrush tasted of it, and the smell of unground coffee beans reminded her forever after of that flight across to East Africa. Martha followed her pilot around the plane like a puppy while he gave the machine its pre-flight checks, genuinely fascinated, though not daring to touch anything herself. The wings and fuselage gleamed like silver. Hart Alden ran his hands lovingly over the front surfaces of the wings. Is this plane yours? I've had it for a year, from brand new. Is that how long you've been in Kenya? Oh, longer than that, nearly five years. I left the States about a year after the war. Did you learn to fly in the war? During, Alden answered. But not in it. I learned as a civilian. The Air Force would have taken me, or I could have flown for England, I guess. But I don't meet their physical requirements, you know, so I didn't have to fight. I thought everyone wanted to fight the Axis, said Martha, who had been seven years old when Pearl Harbor had been bombed and remembered her father shouting the news out a bedroom window to her mother, holding her hand in the street below. She also remembered how useless it had been trying to get anyone's attention when the radio was on. Hart Alden did not answer, busy pushing and pulling at the movable part of the airplane's tail as vigorously as if he had wanted to pull them off. Martha thought she must have sounded a little reproachful, so she added, My father didn't know what to do. He was a minister, and he had a little girl, me. He didn't have to go, but he felt guilty about it. He finally applied to be posted as an army chaplain, but then the war was over before they sent him anywhere. Well, I never even got that far in solving my own moral dilemma. I never signed up for anything. Maybe I would have if it had gone on longer. Or if I could have done something like your father's job. I'm not a fighter. My gosh, he whistled. Lucy, my sister, she's a fighter. She should have been a bomber pilot, but I'm not. I'll have to leave Kenya soon or I'll be caught in the middle. I hate watching other people fight. I know how you feel. I'm not a fighter either. Not at all, Martha agreed. But she wasn't sure what the difference was. She was not a fighter, but there was something in her that did not like to sit still. I thought maybe you got hurt in the war. Hart Alden smiled faintly. He dusted his hands off and reached into the plane to slide his cane on the floor alongside the seat. No, he said slowly. Or, anyway, not that war. Come on, we're ready. Let's get Mary and her cats. I don't want to make her any grouchier than she already is. I told her she couldn't bring her makeup bag if she wanted to bring that five-pound bag of kitty kibble and extra water. Good thing she's not that much bigger than a cat herself. Mrs. Copley was, in fact, considerably smaller than Martha, a thing that Martha secretly admired and envied, as well as envying her Christian name. You said it was only a three-hour flight. Well, it is, but you've got to be prepared. I don't cross the plains without water. Have you got a first aid kit? And a coffee pot. Alden smiled his slow, mild smile and squeezed Martha's shoulders with one long brown hand. Don't worry. He walked slowly without his walking stick, watching his feet. He moved his long body with the lanky grace of a baseball player, but his stride was broken and uneven, and he kept his hand lightly on Martha's shoulder as they crossed the windy airfield. But then he carried Mrs. Copley's two Siamese cats in their rattan carrier basket, with Mrs. Copley hanging on his other arm as though she needed the support or the wind would knock her down. Mrs. Copley carried the cat food, and Martha carried the small amount of luggage for all three of them and the coffee pot. Mary and Martha, thought Martha again. I get to take care of her toothbrush while she flirts with the pilot. Well, she likes being pampered, Martha added to herself more charitably, and I guess he's pampering her. 
The cats and Mrs. Copley were stowed in the back seat, being the lightest passengers. The cabin was less than half as big as the inside of Atkins' saloon car. Martha got to sit in the front next to the pilot. They strapped themselves in. Hart Alden gave her a map. Now look, he said to Martha, I have a job for you. I used to get Lucy to do this for me. There isn't much out here, and we don't want to get lost. So every ten or fifteen minutes, when you see a landmark on the map that you're sure of, a junction of the railway and a road, or a lake, or an airstrip, some of them are marked. Martha looked down at the map. He had marked the airstrip himself. Then you write down next to it what time it was when we passed it, and we'll know how long we need to fly to find it again if we need to turn back for some reason, and also we'll know about how long we need to fly before we get to the next landmark. So this way, we'll always be pretty sure where we are. We're going to follow the railway most of the way, so keep watching for that. Thank you, Martha murmured, because this, above all, having something to do was what mattered to her. I've got an extra headset for you. You can talk to me in the air. He leaned back over his seat and pulled at the ends of Mrs. Copley's safety belt with his long hands. I'll tie it back there. If you need anything, you tap Martha on the shoulder and let her know what's up, and she'll tell me. They roared down the runway and lifted as lightly and easily as a kite on a windy beach. Martha fought with the map and craned to see over the dashboard as the horizon disappeared beneath their climb. She glanced out the side. The sky was like crystal. They flew over a brown and yellow landscape with nothing in it. During the first part of the journey, Martha could see tiny circles of clustered huts and cattle herds sprinkled around them, but they soon left these behind, and for at least an hour there was nothing but the railway line. Then she began to see the shapeless forms of dead volcanoes, green mounds with black pits sunk through their middles. Alden peered out the window past Martha's bent head as she searched for the next landmark. She heard his voice crackling through the earphones. Look, there's Kilimanjaro. What a beautiful day. The foothills of the great mountain loomed vast and dark at a distance. Clouds uncurled around the sloping shoulders, and above the clouds the great twin crags of the old volcano jutted, gleaming silver at the heights where the mountain's eternal crest of snow caught the sun. Mrs. Copley tapped Martha on the shoulder. Martha pulled the headset away from one ear. "'Where's the powder room?' Mrs. Copley shouted. Martha blinked at her. "'What?' The powder room, Mrs. Copley yelled. I need a pit stop. They had been flying for an hour and a half. Martha remembered the gin and tonic in the flying club. Mrs. Copley pointed at Alden, raising an eyebrow above the rim of her sunglasses and nodding encouragingly. So tell the pilot. Martha put her headset back on. Mrs. Copley needs a pit stop, she said. There followed a heated, relayed discussion about the urgency of this matter, and astonishingly, Hart Alden laid his finger on the map in Martha's lap. There, he said, grass strip and emboselli. Keep your eyes peeled. It's hard to spot. I haven't spotted any of them. Nice place for a picnic, too, Alden added absently. You're kidding. When you've got to go, Martha hid her face in the wide folds of the map, spluttering. They flew for another quarter of an hour, and there, where it was meant to be, was a rectangular patch of darker brown against the dull olive of the empty world. The plane settled as smoothly as if it were trying to land in a row of haystacks. Mrs. Copley swore through her teeth loudly and in a most unladylike manner. Let her out, Hart Alden said, reaching over Martha to unlatch the door. Mrs. Copley climbed over her as nimbly as one of her cats might have done. The pilot and Martha sat side by side, both of them red in the face and shaking. Oh, 
Martha leaned back to peer into the wicker hamper, tears leaking out of the corners of her eyes in her effort not to laugh. That sounds like one of the cats is going to throw up. Not in my plane, Alden said, and hauled the hamper out of the back seat to drop it out the door. Come on, Martha. Come look at the embacelli. It was an alien and empty as the moon. There was absolutely nothing there but low acacia scrub and cactus, and a little flower that looked like wild narcissus. It was windy and the air smelled faintly of sage. There was no sound at all but the distant rumble of thunder. Huh, Alden said. I wonder what that is. They could see no clouds. He scanned the horizon and Martha followed his gaze, staring out toward the edge of the airstrip. Unbelievably, there was a dozen people standing there. They carried spears. One of them wore a khaki safari shirt, not very different to Aiden's, and the rest wore hardly anything. Mrs. Copley let out a little, low shriek and emerged from beneath the opposite wing, hastily pulling her clothes back into place. Get back in the plane, Hart Alden said in a low voice. His passengers obeyed without question. He tossed the cats in the back, crammed his lanky body into the tiny cockpit, and slammed the doors. Will they attack? Mrs. Copley gasped. Hart Alden, who was securing his safety belt, burst out laughing. You've been reading too many newspapers, he said. Those are Maasai, not Kikuyu. And anyway, they're as civil as you are. But you're worried about something. Thunder. What? Everyone always wants to look at the plane out here. That will take ages once they get started. But there's a thunderstorm brewing somewhere. We can't hang around being ambassadors to the 20th century if it means we might run into a thunderstorm later. Everybody warned me about the wrong things, Martha thought. I don't need to worry about people. They're not going to try to kill me. I should be hoping I don't get struck by lightning and worrying about whether I've got enough water to survive a plane crash. But, curiously, this did not scare her, and it made her decide that the people did not scare her either. The engine roared. The little plane began its kangaroo progress across the savannah. The handful of tribesmen waved furiously, and Martha waved back. They frantically acknowledged one another's existence in the brief seconds it took to launch the plane aloft again, their strange worlds briefly touching for a minute. After another hour of flying, a pall of haze closed up the horizon and it began to get bumpy. That's the ocean, Alden told Martha. Only you can't see it because of the haze. And do you see that pile of cloud off to the right? That's a thunderstorm. It's just about right on top of the quail airstrip, where we're headed. There's another, Martha pointed. They flew on toward the haze. We'll never get down there, Alden said. I wouldn't dare. We'll go north a bit and try to land at Malindi for the night on the coast. Otherwise, we'll just waste fuel circling. There are plenty of hotels in Malindi. Martha considered trying to relay this information to Mrs. Copley and decided against it. Behind her dark glasses, the backseat passenger was very pale in the face and sat with her head tilted upward toward the seat back as though she were studying the ceiling. Martha could see the slight movement of her white throat as she swallowed. The great dark clouds piled and banked up along the coast and a little way inland, southward to their right and behind them. The little plane purred its way north, away from the storms. Then they were coming down, leapfrogging through the air almost as violently as they had been taxiing on the ground in Embacelli. What in the world makes you bounce in the air like this, Martha wondered, and looked out to see palm fronds whipping wildly in the trees below, which had suddenly gotten very near. Martha gripped the sides of her seat, Mrs. Copley gripped Martha's shoulder, and Martha let go of the seat to clutch at the nervous hand. Thump! They were down. The dirt runway seemed very smooth. Well, 
That was the best fun I've had since my sister blew up the professor's houseboat, Hart Alden said casually, steering the plane to a standstill in the long grass at the edge of the runway. Mrs. Copley let go of Martha's hand. Both cats were sick. Alden pulled off his headset and reached across Martha to fling open her door. A rush of warm, salty air fought with Martha's mouth. Wow, it's windy. No kidding, said the pilot. They piled out of the plane. At the end of the runway was a hut made out of palm thatch. Where are we? said Mrs. Copley ominously. Manda Island. Where? Just across the bay from Lamu. We can spend the night in Lamu or Shella. Lamu's over a hundred miles from Quail. Why, we're practically in Somaliland. There was lightning over Quail, Martha ventured. We couldn't have landed there. Say it with confidence, kid, Hart Alden told her. They crossed the bay in a dhow. One of the local people, with the prosaic English name of Raymond, had met Alden before. They chattered to each other in Swahili and arranged this leg of the trip without once consulting either of the passengers, child or adult. Mrs. Copley bristled. Martha thought Mrs. Copley was holding up quite well under the circumstances, the pleats in her khaki skirt still crisp, her green silk scarf gallant. They were deposited on the dock in Lamu, clutching their few belongings, and followed Alden's friend on foot. Lamu, to Martha's Pennsylvania city-bred eyes, looked like a place out of the Arabian Nights. The whitewashed houses were jumbles of balconies and minarets, with roofs and awnings of thatched palm. The passages and streets between were narrow as pathways, opening to sudden squares or small open mosques, and filled with children and chickens, dogs and donkeys. There were no automobiles at all. The wind hurried down the gaps between the buildings and tugged at their thatched roofs. Raymond carried the cats. Alden leaned heavily, Martha thought, on his cane. They walked out of the town and along a path by the water to Shella, the next village. They were finally led up three staircases to a little suite of rooms opening into a terrace, roofed, but with crenellated railings instead of walls. Martha and Mrs. Copley had to share a double bed. Out the bedroom window were huge white sand dunes, shielding the house some little from the wind off the Indian Ocean. In the square below the terrace, the heads of palm trees tossed sideways. Well, we'll have to wait till the wind drops before we start off again, said Alden. Shall we go to the beach? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They waited for Mrs. Copley to feed and water her cats. She let them loose in the bedroom, pulling the shutters tight. In the end, she could not bear to leave them. You and the kid have a good run on the beach. Bring me some sand to use for litter. Then we'll have a nice, long, quiet evening together, she promised. So Martha set out with the pilot on a mission to find cat litter, through the narrow alleyways and over the pale dunes, blushed faintly gold now by the sun of late afternoon. Boy, am I ever a fifth wheel around here, Martha thought. What a romantic trip this would be for the two of them if I weren't along. But no, she's married. She's going to meet her husband, and she doesn't exactly flirt either. She just makes you carry her luggage and bring her drinks. What about Hart Alden, though? He's not really the romantic type. He's not bad-looking, but he's got other things on his mind. He's busy with his airplane and his sister. It was tough going for Alden to limp his way through the soft, deep sand at the foot of the dunes. He cocked his stick jauntily over his shoulder and carefully kept his eye on his feet, like someone trying to climb down a mountain slope of ice. Martha watched him pick his way steadily through the firmer sand at the water's edge. She bent to scoop sand into another coffee sack to take back to the cats. It sifted through the burlap almost as quickly as she tipped it in. All is vanity, Martha murmured, and a striving afterwind. She giggled. This is the silliest thing I've ever tried to do. I never heard a girl quote so much scripture. Ecclesiastes, right? I'm a PK, Martha said sheepishly, caught at it again. But it's like chasing the wind. Try down here where it's wetter. He limped along the shore. Martha picked up a seashell, as small and smooth and pale as the nail of her own little finger. What war did you get hurt in? she asked. Hart Alden smiled, very faintly. His cane sank into the sand, even down here by the foaming chocolate tide line, so he slung it over his shoulder again. My father did it, by accident, when I was about your age. He dropped a box on my foot. Ouch, said Martha with sympathy. You could blame it on my sister, Hart Alden said. She threw it at him. They were fighting with each other, but neither of them meant to hurt me. I'm not a fighter, he had said. Martha nodded. Like being in Kenya right now? Caught in the middle? She said sympathetically, standing up. Does your sister come visit you here? You said she used to fly with you. I haven't heard from her for more than five years, Alden answered. He, too, bent to pick up his shell and pitched it low and fast out to sea. It skipped eight times before Martha lost sight of it. Wow, Martha breathed. You've got an arm like Lefty Grove. Yeah, I do. So did my dad. Isn't Lefty Grove before your time? Oh, not much. The legend lives on. My sisters and I all made to worship at the altar of the Philadelphia Athletics, Alden said, and sent another shell burning into the waves. You really miss your family, Martha observed. I guess I do, but that's not because I'm here. My dad died nearly fifteen years ago, and Lucy stopped talking to me during the war. I don't miss her because I'm far away. I came away because I missed her. It's easier five thousand miles away. I couldn't stand living in the same city and never seeing Lucy, ever. She hung up if I telephoned. She moved and changed her number. The war was important to her, he added consideringly, as if he were so distanced from the emotional turmoil of his family that he no longer cared about it. She gave up on me when I wouldn't join up. Well, 
This explained his disappointment when Martha had told him it was her host who knew his sister, not herself. Maybe he had hoped Martha could give her a message, or find out her address. Hart Alden stood gazing out to sea, his walking stick slung over his shoulder, slouching a little as he always did. Dr. Lucia Alden, he said sadly. Talk about chasing the wind. She never did let anyone in her family tell her what to do. It'll take a bolt out of the blue to make Lucy change her mind. Alden swung back toward the village then, and Martha followed. Clouds piled golden and silver behind the dunes. Martha and the pilot plodded silently through whipping sand to the winding path back to their guest house, where an elaborate supper and Mary Copley waited for them on their colonnaded court. They ate as the sun set and the wind rose. Har Alden kept looking around and raising his head as though he were a dog trying to pick up a scent. The wind lifted his graying brown hair lightly over his young face. Mrs. Copley shivered. Goodness, what a wind. Yes, Alden brushed hair out of his eyes. Mrs. Copley reached out to still his fluttering hand with one of hers. Her nails were perfectly manicured straight out of Elizabeth Arden. What's the matter? I'm worried about the plane. What about it? It's not tied down. I should have tied it, but I was worrying about finding us a place to stay and getting a dow, and I thought the wind would drop when the sun went down. A wind like this could easily blow a Cessna over. There was a silence around the table then, as the wind whipped and cried in the dark, and the thatch creaked and the palms rustled and mysterious things down at the shallow jetty clinked and knocked. Well, there's no point in worrying about it, Mrs. Copley said. You can't do anything about it until tomorrow. I've got to tie it down, said Hart Alden. He stood up and paced to the edge of the terrace and leaned out into the rushing dark. Then he straightened. I'll be back in a minute, he called over his shoulder and cantered down the stairs. Martha and Mrs. Copley sat staring at each other in the flickering light of the kerosene hurricane lamp, abandoned. Then Mary Copley fell into a dither of nervousness. She paced back and forth along the terrace, clenching and unclenching her fingers around the handle of a butter knife, which she waved and pointed for emphasis as she talked. Do you think he's gone to do it himself? But how can he? And are we safe here alone? What if he doesn't come back? What then? He said he'd be back in a minute, said Martha. Well, do you trust him? Martha did not answer immediately. It seemed pretty much a rhetorical question, since they had both meekly submitted to his unknown expertise and judgment for a three-hundred-mile flight across the African bush, in a plane the size of a sports car. But he should have tied it down in the first place, and there was that pen in the fuel tank. As Martha hesitated, Alden came galloping unevenly up the stairs carrying a pre-war flashlight as big as a trumpet. "'Raymond's found me a motor launch,' he said. So we're going back across to Manda to tie down the plane. As Martha hesitated, Alden came galloping unevenly up the stairs, carrying a pre-war flashlight as big as a trumpet. Raymond's found me a motor launch, he said. So we're going back across to Manda to tie down the plane. Do you have to? Mrs. Copley asked. If you want to fly out of here, he answered sharply. Will we be safe alone? Hart Alden stared at her, bewildered. Well, you were safe this afternoon. Why wouldn't we be safe now? This is a village. You're safer here than you'll be on your husband's farm, where maybe one morning you'll find your cats turned into lion hors d'oeuvres. I mean safe, Mrs. Copley said coldly. There aren't any locks. Oh, he actually laughed. 
this isn't New York City. No one's leaving New York because they're afraid to live there. Mrs. Copley stood up with queenly dignity for such a small woman and armed herself with the butter knife she had been conducting with earlier. She stalked to the closed door of the room she was to share with Martha. We'll just stay in here till we're sure you're back and safe and sound. Come on, Martha. Martha hesitated, took a breath, and then said all in a rush, No, I think I'll go with Captain Alden. There was a short silence. I want to come, Martha said. Maybe I could help hold the flashlight or something while you work. It's stuffy inside anyway. Mrs. Copley opened her door a crack, angling a foot across it in case the cats tried to make a run for it. She shifted her grip on her table knife. Shella's not known for its street riots, Alden commented mildly. I'll see you all later then, Mrs. Copley answered and slipped inside the room and closed the door. Bet she's building a barricade with her pet carrier, Martha thought as she followed the pilot down the terrace steps and through the narrow lanes between the houses, watching the broad but dim path illuminated by the antique flashlight. They heard the roar of the speedboat before they reached the Shella jetty. There were about half a dozen people standing there when they arrived. Raymond, the two owners of the launch, a short man carrying iron stakes and a coil of wire, and a couple of boys about Martha's own age contributing ropes woven of palm fronds. Nobody bothered with introductions. They just all piled into the speedboat, which was nothing more than a dow with a great big motor stuck on the back, and set out across the bay. It was glorious. It was, if anything, better than flying over the foothills of Kilimanjaro. There was no light at all, no moonlight, no lights on the boat, no lights on the island where they were heading, nothing but wind and speed and night, and a million stars blazing overhead and unfamiliar patterns between the clouds. Martha had no idea how anyone knew where they were going. The launch crashed over the waves like a horse leaping fences. If there was another boat with no lights out there on the water in the dark somewhere, they were all sunk. I don't care, Martha thought. It is worth it for this ride. If I die like this, I will die happy. Monda Island loomed low and black in front of them, like the silhouette edging the artificial horizon of a planetarium's dome. The top edge of the silhouette waved and tossed. That was Manda Island's low trees moving in the wind. The stars began right behind them and got thicker, but no less bright the higher up the sky you looked. Martha could not remember ever having noticed before how deep the sky is. You could see stars behind stars, on and on forever. They all climbed out of the boat. They walked in the dark to save the batteries on the flashlight. The path seemed full of roots and rocks. Martha had to trust her feet to find her own way, and she was glad she had chosen to wear sensible Oxfords for this leg of the journey, and sent the pumps and sneakers with her luggage. Hart Alden, limping at her side, was more sure-footed than she was, confidently feeling the way with his cane like a blind man. They reached the airfield and crossed the runway. There sat the little plane in the lee of the wind, beneath a hedge of shrub that surrounded it in a small and unexpected pocket of calm. Not so windy here, said Raymond in English. Hart Alden laughed and swung the light over the plane, and it was still and quiet. Can I choose a parking place, or can I choose a parking place? Well, let's do what we came to do. The men tied down the plane. It took about five minutes, and Martha held the light for them and kept track of the stakes in the dark. They were a jovial party on the way back to Sheila. The men shouted to each other in Swahili over the noise of the waves in the engine. 
They all stood for a moment at the dock, laughing and chattering while Alden handed out cigarettes, and then the party split up as the owners of the boat sped back to wherever they had come from, and the butts were stubbed out, and the boys disappeared down the narrow coast back to Lamu, laughing and punching at each other. Come on, Martha. Hart Alden beckoned her with the flashlight. Can I carry that, or does that help you watch your feet? Martha, Martha. He was silent for a moment and then said, You are anxious and troubled about many things. I'm a grown-up. I can carry the flashlight. Come on, Martha, he repeated. Mary will be waiting up for us. Later, lying in the dark under the mosquito net canopy, as far away from Mrs. Copley and her pile of cats as she could get without falling out of bed, Martha thought over Hart Alden's gentle, enigmatic reprimand to her. He had not needed Martha to come along to tie down the plane. He had six men helping him. Mrs. Copley, on the other hand, had been sitting in the dark, alone and frightened. Martha had done exactly what her mother always warned her about. She had been so busy finding something to do that she had missed seeing where she was most needed. It deflated her like a pop balloon. It took away the joy of the boat ride. Oh, why was she born a Martha when she wanted to be a Mary? Mrs. Copley had to wake her for breakfast. The wind had slackened. They made the coastal flight to Quail in short stages, stopping at Malandi to refuel. They flew just below the clouds. Out one window, it was raining. Out the other, the sun shone. The country in the rain was lush green, dotted with blue of inlet and water tank and water hole, and seemed to go on forever into distant haze, miniature and luminous. The sunlit Indian Ocean was muddy brown at the river mouths, pearl and turquoise beyond. By lunchtime, Martha was scrambling out of the little plane, on another grass strip, and hurling herself into her father's arms. Mrs. Copley held court on her husband's veranda as they ate lunch. Mary Copley made the trip sound like an even bigger adventure than it was, and described her own part in it with unashamedly self-depreciating humor. The nearest bush is about five miles away, so I say to myself, Mary, my dear, who is going to see you? And I get down there, under the wing, in the middle of the middle of nowhere, and when I look up, there are ten people standing there watching. Mr. Copley and Martha's father roared with laughter, and Hart Alden smiled down at his coffee, making little choked snorting noises. And they were carrying spears. Another general burst of laughter, as if it were somehow funnier to be caught with your pants down by a dozen native warriors than by a dozen Philadelphians waiting for a streetcar. The Maasai do, said Martha's mother. They do carry spears. You would, too, if you spent your life herding cattle in the lion country. Mary Copley said, I'd carry a pistol. Hart Alden murmured, or a butter knife. Oh! Mrs. Copley banged down her fork, gesticulating wildly, as much as to say that her mouth was full now, but she still had the floor. Reverend Bennett, do you have any idea how brave your daughter is? Last night, in the middle of the night, she went off in a speedboat with half a dozen strange Swahili-speaking men so she could help Harry tie down his airplane. Me, I could not have done that in a million years. I was terrified. I wouldn't leave my bedroom. A thousand miles from anywhere. No electricity. No telephone. No one who speaks English. She stopped and spoke directly to Martha with deep admiration. You're a real fighter, darling. I'm not, Martha protested. I just like having something to do. Hart Alden nodded, smiling at her. No, Martha isn't a fighter, he agreed. She's a doer. She gets up and gets things done like her namesake. 
Martha sat at the big kitchen table in her parents' crazy temporary house. Her mother and the Copley's cook were making pepper pot soup using Eland instead of cow stomach, which her mother swore produced a reasonable substitute once you got past the usual revulsion over identifying the ingredients of pepper pot in the first place. Martha was not involved in this project. She was writing a letter. Dear Mrs. Atkins, it began, thank you so much for letting me share a bedroom with Sally. Martha went on in this bread and buttery vein for a while, and briefly described her flight to Quail, and then she casually mentioned the pilot. His name is Hart Alden. His sister is the head of the horticulture at your school. Please tell her. Martha had stopped writing. She gazed out the open door, past her mother and the Luo cook, joking with each other in Swahili, which neither of them spoke fluently. Martha chewed on her pen and stared at the violet and magenta bougainvillea cascading over the veranda rails. The house had been built between the wars, like the flashlight, and felt old and calm and solid. Unlike her mother's fragile temporary crossing all the wrong boundaries friendship with her landlord's cook, Martha's fingers were inky. She looked down at the page again. What lousy penmanship I have, she thought, making fingerprints on the cardboard cover of her mother's airmail pad. There was a picture of a bolt of lightning on the cover to show how fast airmail letters went. What lousy penmanship I have, she thought, making fingerprints on the cardboard cover of her mother's airmail pad. There was a picture of a bolt of lightning on the cover to show how fast airmail letters went. It'll take a bolt out of the blue to make Lucy change her mind. Okay, Dr. Lucia Alden, here it comes. This is your bolt out of the blue. I'm going to do this, Martha thought. I'm a doer, like my namesake. She wrote, Please give Dr. Alden the enclosed note from me, saying how much I liked her brother. He talked about her a lot, all good. Sally only ever complains about how strict she is. I'd like to meet her sometime. Maybe you can introduce us when I get home? Sorry to make you be the mailman, but I forgot to ask Captain Alden for her address. Coming here was much scarier than being here. I guess some kind of civil war is not far off, but I feel safe. I'll see you in September. Your friend, Martha. She began the second letter. This one would be more difficult. But even if it did not work, there was still Sally and Sally's mother and the Philadelphia Flower Show. Martha's lightning bolt would find its mark eventually. Lightning moves faster than the wind. Dear Dr. Alden. Although it's not a classical fantasy tale, this one really gripped me from the first line. Maybe the fact that it takes place in Africa was what got me. Whatever it was, thank you, Ms. Wine. Our second story today is called Surface Tension by K.J. Kabza. Mr. Kabza has sold over 50 stories to venues such as Nature, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. He lives in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona, where he enjoys being surrounded by thorny cactus instead of thorny people. He invites you to follow him on Twitter and peruse kjkabza.com for links to free fiction and more. It's read for you today by Alex Weinler, who writes short fiction for magazines and podcasts. His anthology of shock comedic tragic stories, The Decapophiliac, is available now, and his science fiction novel, Border, is currently in editing. Long time so for naught, he has finally got up the courage to narrate. He lives in Fullbourne in England, 
in a cottage that consumes bulbs of unusual wattage. You can find him on Twitter. Just follow the links on the triple F. And so, here we have it. Surface Tension by K.J. Kapser. I hate it when she does this. Brianna lies in the bathtub on her back, one knee bent and leaning in, making the lines of her hips twist and beckon. She lies in deep water, her eyes in calculating slits, the exhalations from her nose rippling a tiny current atop the surface. I refuse to acknowledge this. I flip up the toilet seat and take myself out like nothing's wrong. Brianna's mouth rises above the waterline. What are you doing? This is the bathroom. I'm going to it. This is the bathroom and I'm taking a bath. Can't you use the other one? What, like you've never seen me? It's disgusting, Jess. She gets onto her elbows and the water laps against the sides of her breasts. I'm trying to relax. Well, I'm almost done now. Problem solved. She hisses and sinks back down, air bubbling up from between her teeth. I realise that I'm staring at her, but she counts on this. Her submerged body makes me feel both tempted and helpless, because to me, she may as well be snow white, entombed in glass. I flush the toilet, and go to her, stepping over the rim of the bathtub. But when I step down, I don't hit skin. Instead, I stand upon the water's surface. I move my other foot inside. I'm towering over her now, as if the threat of my body weight were real. My nearness should make her uncomfortable. Maybe it does. Brianna gives me a forced smile, and I feel guilty and sick. Her mouth emerges again. I found one of your empty cans on the shoreline. Could be anybody's can. I found the receipt on the nightstand. If you're going to lie to me, Jess, you've got to try harder. Since when does having a beer out on the lake make up a lie? Having a beer? The receipt was for a six-pack. Fine. I go out on the lake and I have six beers. How's that any different from what you and Claire do on Fridays? That's not a goddamn point. Brianna moves as if to sit up, and then remembers the shielding barrier and stays put. The point is that I always tell you where I'm going. You just disappear. So? Her eyes narrow even further, but not in anger. Yeah. Okay, so what? Why should I care about what might be happening to you? I'm just saying. Forget it. You don't have to talk to me. Go take one of those walks you love so much. I do. I leave the house and go down to the lake. When we first moved here, I'd stroll along the surface while Brianna swam by my feet. Sometimes she'd tell me about the lake bottom, the scummy weeds, the boulders thirty feet out the wide-eyed fish that hid in the shadows of the rocks. The landscape sounded ugly, but romantic, like urban ruins. 
It's not all that great, she'd say. And I'd nod like I believed her. Today the lake is a vast expanse of empty sheet metal. I stride onto it and out. A half mile from shore I sit down and look out to the horizon. Brianna tells me that when other people look over a vast body of water, they feel its mystery and power. I only feel alone, unable to sink down into that powerful embrace that everyone else gets to feel. I rub a finger along the water. Feels like stone to me. It will only become liquid if I press my open mouth against it or if it falls on top of me, which is as miraculous as the rest of it, I guess. But I've long stopped wondering what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. I sulk out there for a while. I probably ought to apologize. Again. But this won't necessarily mean anything either. Our argument is deeper than me drinking alone on the lake. And whatever apology I come up with will have to be better than all the ones I've made before. But maybe I don't need to make a better apology. Maybe I need to make a submarine. I walk back to the house and get a bucket from the garage. I fill it with baseball-sized rocks from the beach. Then I lug the bucket into the kitchen where I grab a 40-gallon trash bag. Then I go into the bathroom. Brianna is still there, lurking beneath the refreshed bathwater like a wary crocodile. She eyes me as I approach. I unfold the trash bag and drop the closed end into the water by her feet. With almost comical difficulty, I use one hand to hold the bag open while I step into it while my other arm hugs a rock-laden bucket against my chest. Brianna frowns. I look down. I can't see anything past all that crinkly black. Have I sunk in at all? Jess, what are you doing? I'm trying to sit in a bathtub with you. Brianna sits up, looking at me sceptically, while water dribbles down her unprotected skin. I squat down in my garbage bag, then, one at a time, remove the rocks from the bucket, dropping them into the plastic at my feet. Only when I'm not carrying them do the rocks have weight. The garbage bag begins to sink. Jess. I finally run out of rocks. I sit on top of them, which is awfully uncomfortable, but the garbage bag now clings around me because I've finally found a way to sink into her and I can feel the soft weight of all that powerful water moulding itself around me. The bag crinkles whenever I breathe. Brianna stares at me. Her face pinches into a grin, and her shoulders twitch with suppressed laughter. I'm here, aren't I? I ask. Yes. Her eyes shine like the surface I've broken through. Yes, you're certainly here. Well... It's a start. Now that is a love story with a very unusual premise. Try explaining that one to your five-year-old. For those of you who have been paying attention to the website, you will have noticed that last week we had some new art. I, of course, in my confusion, forgot to actually tell you about these artists. My apologies. 
First we have a piece by Kirk Killerkill, who lives in Stevenage in Hertfordshire. He's a freelance illustrator, and you can have a look at him on Facebook or follow his link on the Triple F. Then we have a piece by Ferdinand Ladera. He was born in Iligan, the city of majestic waterfalls, situated in the southeastern part of the Philippines. He's a fantasy concept illustrator, and, like Kirk, you can follow the link on the Triple F website to learn more about this artist's fabulous work. Thank you both for donating your time and your beautiful artwork to the Triple F. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, you can share the link on Google or Twitter or any of the other social media sites you frequent. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling, and do a kind deed this week. Why? Just because. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 